And good morning again, everybody. It's, uh, it's good to be back in the saddle. I was thankful to have a couple of Sundays off, but, you know, uh, Gary and Kevin, thank you for preaching such powerful sermons. I know that I needed to hear, and I really appreciate that. You know, if you do a Google search on the word obedience, first of all, you get a lot of definitions of what obedience is. But then right after that, the sites kind of fall into two different categories. They either fall into sites about dog obedience, or they start referencing something called the Milgram Experiment. There was a PhD student at Yale who did a series of experiments trying to understand really why so many Nazis in Germany were willing to follow through with so many unhumane commands. The experiment was called obedience to authority. Why did they do these things? So in this experiment, there were three people, an experimenter, a teacher, and a participant. The experimenter was the voice of authority issuing the questions. The teacher was the one that was really being experimented on, only they, they didn't know it. They were called into this. They were just like you and me. And then there was the learner, the one answering the questions. The learner was an actor. But the teacher thought that the learner was being shocked every time they got an answer wrong, and it was their job to shock them. So as the questions went along, as the learner got more and more questions wrong, the voltage was turned up, and as the learner was moaning and groaning, the teacher thought that they were in increasing pain. So the idea here was to find out, would this person keep on shocking the other person as the experiment goes along, and it turns out they did. As a matter of fact, two-thirds of the teacher kept obeying the experimenter in the white coat until they punched their learners with a maximum of 450 volts. This had an effect on culture. Obedience became a very nasty word. It became something that we're suspicious of. It's something that maybe we think is for dogs, but not for human beings. It can also feel mindless and scary, and that it hurts people. Not to mention that we're living in confusing times, and many don't know what or how to obey. And yet, in the scriptures, this is exactly what God commands of us. Complete and total obedience, doing things his way. If you read through Hebrews chapter 11, you see what costly obedience looks like. You see that people are leaving homes to places they don't know. They're choosing mistreatment, torture, mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. All obedience by faith. So the question I want to talk about is how can we obey God when it's difficult how can we obey God when it's difficult? We're here standing at the beginning of 2021, and I think, frankly, a lot of us are asking, what is this ocean of days that is in front of us going to bring? It seems like everything is changing very, very quickly, and frankly, we don't know what it's going to be like. I know for many of us, it feels like there's sort of a fog or curtain coming down, and Christians are responding very, very differently to all the changes that are going on. This is the subject I want to talk about this morning, and the text we're going to look at is 1 Samuel chapter 13. 
I'll be reading verses uh, 5 through 14. We're going to pick up right after Saul has become king. Two years into his kingship, the Israelites just had a big defeat that they enjoyed against the Philistines. They defeated the Philistines. They are enjoying victory now. But the Philistines are none too happy about what happened. They're starting to muster again. And this is where we pick it up in verse 5. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 5 through 14. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will have come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You may be seated. So we're continuing again through the book of 1 Samuel. We're walking alongside these Israelites. Watching God work during a time of transition. And it's about trusting in a time of transition. These Israelites are constantly challenged in where they are going to place their faith. Will they place their faith in an institution of man? Or will they ultimately place their faith in the God of Israel? I don't know if there's a more appropriate week to hear a message like this and a passage like the one we're looking at today. We're seeing the inevitable failure of this earthly king. And in it, we see the anatomy of sin. As a matter of fact, you could say this is an autopsy on a sin that has gone and, and, and happened in front of us. I want to approach our subject this way this morning. First, we'll see that circumstances overwhelm. And then obedience fades. Responsibility is avoided. And then we'll talk about, well, how do I be a fully obedient believer, particularly in challenging circumstances like the one we find here in the book of 1 Samuel. And first we see that circumstances overwhelm. We saw it there in verses 6 through 8. 
the Philistine army had mustered 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Saul had about 2,000 troops. And what are the Israelites doing? They, they're hiding in any little nook and cranny they can find for themselves. A cave here, a, a cistern, which is a big, you know, a dugout kind of a well. Tombs. And perhaps Saul was trusting in his troops for the defense of his country. But these people are trembling. And if he's trusting in his troops, he's in a lot of trouble. I can understand why he might be trembling too. But God's promise included victory over the Philistines. If you look back the last chapter, and you look at verses 14 and 15, they had been promised this. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord our God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now they had a promise. But promises in the face of what feels like impending doom. Ooh, really? But God, look around. I mean, I, I have no idea what it would be like for 30,000 chariots to be bearing down on me. But Saul's got a problem. His biggest problem is that he is not fearing the Lord. He's fearing the circumstances that are around him. Now, this is not unlike the New Testament disciples. As a matter of fact, we've got a scene that comes up in the book of Mark chapter 4, where there's a, a storm raging in the Sea of Galilee, and they're in a boat, they're scared, they panic. And what is Jesus doing? Well, he's just sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And in Mark 4, 38, they respond. They said they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's like the worst thing you could have said to God, who came to die for them, is faithfully showing them and revealing himself to them. And he gave them a sharp, sharp rebuke. Jesus was tender and he was loving and he was merciful, but when he heard this, he rebuked them. He said, have you still not faith? You know, I think at some point in the life of just about every parent, uh, their child will look at them in a fit of anger and say, I hate you. Fortunately, we haven't experienced that yet. But I can imagine what that might be like. Do you know everything we've sacrificed for you? Do you know what all we've done for you? And you would say this to me. Jesus is hearing these words. And it's like, are you kidding me? Do you know what I left to come down here to earth to save you? Have you still not faith? But this is the result of looking around at circumstances, thinking, well, God's just not present. His eye's not on us. There's a pastor named Alan Redpath, who's a pastor in the early uh, 20th century. And he said this about the difficulty of, of God's will and accepting it. He said, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, 
As I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. So don't get freaked out by circumstances, okay? This is basically situation normal. It's going to be like this till Jesus comes back. We, you may enjoy the gravy train for a while. It's going to come back to the station. Things are going to happen. So don't freak out if that boyfriend or girlfriend dumps you. Okay? It's going to work out for something better. You'll get through it. Things are going to happen that hurt. You're tempted in moments like this to take matters into your own hands. And that's when things go south. It's when we start gossiping about each other. Talking about each other behind each other's backs. And when that happens, because God is going to put you in circumstances to test you. When that happens... If we try to take matters in our own hands, we see that obedience is going to fade. This is when obedience starts to fade. That's our second point. So this army is growing. Saul's been instructed to wait seven days until the arrival of Samuel to offer a sacrifice. Then the text says, he waited seven days. That was the time set by Samuel. And he's waiting. And he's waiting. Saul's been obedient up to this point. But then when Samuel does not arrive at the expected time, Saul decides he needs to make other arrangements. He wants to make sure he's going to be victorious. Now, on the one hand, it may seem reasonable. I mean, Samuel was supposed to be there. He didn't really show up. But that still did not give Saul the right to do what he did. I love the way one commentator said this about Saul. <clears throat> he said he fails to accept the structure of authority established for him by Yahweh and his prophet Samuel at the time of his appointment. <clears throat> Saul is usurping power in what he's doing. He was only partially obedient, and being partially obedient is like being disobedient. It's a pattern. It's all through the Bible. You know, the scary and urgent circumstances creep in, Somebody feels insecure and scared, and they feel doubtful. Maybe they think God is absent, and then there's a rebellion. A scared and, and, and a pathetic human being decide they're going to take matters into their own hands, and then they make a royal mess out of the whole thing. It's like Pandora's box being opened. I've seen it so many times in my own life. Feeling insecure, and I try to come off as... Maybe I need to come off as smarter than someone else to make myself feel more secure or, or, or stronger or whatever it can be. But partial obedience is not obedience. And if we're not obedient in the small things, we're not going to be obedient in the big things. You know, if you grew up in the 80s, you're familiar with the band Van Halen. Where is he going with this? <laughs> At some point, if... I know all the guys that I grew up with, we all imagined wanting to play the guitar like Eddie Van Halen. Just passed away, as a matter of fact. 
But they were known for this kind of diva-ish sort of clause in their contract that when they would go uh, to a concert venue, there could be no brown M&Ms in the candy dish bowl backstage. And I remember hearing that thinking, man, these guys are so full of themselves that they can you know, make a demand like that. But as it turns out, they actually had a very good reason for putting that in their contract. And actually, David Lee Roth, the lead singer, he wrote a, song, he, he wrote a, uh, a, a book, and he, he talked about this. <clears throat> he said, what people don't understand is that when we started touring, we had nine semi-trailers full of equipment. And when we would show up somewhere, th this was new to the scene. Bands hadn't started doing this before. We had all this equipment. And when we would show up at a concert venue, there was a lot of things that had to be thought about beforehand. The, the, the doors had to be a certain size. The undergirding to the stage had to, be, had to have a certain strength or else the, the stage itself would, would push the existing stage into the ground and it'd be a safety issue. It could be a real problem. So their contract was a book about this thick when they would show up somewhere. Hidden way down in the middle of that contract was a clause that said, we can have no brown M&Ms. So when they got there, if there were brown M&Ms in the bowl, that was the best indicator they had that the guys that were supposed to get everything set up had not read the contract. So then when they saw that, they would go through line by line to make sure every single thing was accounted for in that contract. I had a completely different perspective on the M&Ms after this. <laughs> See, it was about whether or not the venue was going to accept the contract and be obedient in all of it. Were they going to accept the authority of the contract or were they not? If they were going to do what they deemed insignificant, rather if they weren't going to do what they deemed to be insignificant? Could they trust them to do the things that were more significant? And the results would be disastrous if they didn't. See, God has placed authority structures in our lives, bosses, governments with laws, and unless they're asking us to sin, he intends those to be obeyed. Saul chose not to obey. Then Saul is confronted, and what happens? Responsibility is avoided. Responsibility is avoided. What does he do? Look at verse 11. <clears throat> he starts saying, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me. See, first of all, he puts blame on somebody else. The people, they're scattering from me. And then he blames the prophet. He said, you did not come within the appointed time. You weren't here. Then he blames the Philistines. In verse 12, it says he felt compelled you and the others were not supportive to me. It's the same thing you see in the Garden of Eden. The woman made me do it. The snake made me do it. Same thing I've done a million times. It's not my fault. Desperately looking for somebody else to blame. And Samuel responds, Saul's going to have his kingship taken away. His son would not succeed him as king. Saul lost his kingdom because he could not muster two to three hours of patience. 
Many have lost marriages and ministries because they would not resist a temptation. So how do we avoid these mistakes? This is not an exhaustive list. I do want to close with answering that question. Well, how do I be a fully obedient believer? I want to suggest three ways, not an exhaustive list. But first of all, look to God and not circumstances. Look to God and not circumstances. How do we keep ourselves free of the kind of fear that drove these people, even this past week, to storm that capital complex? Taking matters into their own hands. If you believe this world is all there is, that utopia will come, if we have the right president or the right government, then yes, you should be absolutely terrified. We are not going to get utopia. That is not what the scriptures tell us. We are to fear God and fear God alone. He's sovereign and he has control over the circumstances of man. There's a guy named Gary Miller. He wrote a book about uh, God's control. He said, imagine a basketball game. It's, it's almost the end of overtime. It's time for one last shot. Who do you want to have the ball? He said, you want the calmest and best player out there. Imagine the security of the nation is threatened. Threat levels have gone through the roof, and an attack is imminent. Who do you want to have the nuclear codes? Who do you want making the final call on what to do or what not to do? You want someone who is calm under pressure. Here's another example. Imagine you're going to have a critical surgery to save your life or the life of a loved one. Who do you want with that scalpel in their hand? You want the best doctor available. <clears throat> This is how the Gospels present Jesus Christ. As he's facing the cross, he's under extreme pressure, pressure that no one can ever even begin to fathom. He's sweating drops of blood, and yet at every stage, Jesus is completely calm. He's completely in control of himself. But Jesus also leaves every sports star, politician, every surgeon far behind. It's not that he's just in control of himself. He's in control of the events themselves. It's not just that he's able to handle his own adrenaline. He's able to dictate the result. He's not just able to act wisely under pressure. He's able to determine the outcome. He doesn't just respond skillfully to what he finds. He already knows what he will find. He's already mapped out the solution to the deepest human problem of all. And Jesus stands out because he's in control of the entire sweep of human history. Even as he goes through his death. He, control, he controls all circumstances and even himself through his entire life. Keep your eyes on Christ. Those disciples panicked because they were busy with the storm. Don't worry about the storm. God knows the storm's going to be there. He's got a plan. He's working through it. So don't look to circumstances. And then secondly, accept constraints. Accept constraints. And what do I mean by that? See, I think oftentimes the problem we run into uh, is that we don't want to operate within our constraints. Um, we're only so smart, right? So if we're trying to make A's as a B student, we might be tempted to cheat, to go outside the constraints that God has put into place. This is why athletes will cheat and take drugs so they can perform better. But God sovereignly decides what our constraints are going to be. Whether they be physical, mental, geographical, whatever. 
There's actually a great story about this. It was in 1960. Two men made a bet. There was only 50 bucks on the line, but, but millions of people would feel the impact of this little wager. The first man was named Bennett Cerf. He founded Random House Publishing. The second guy was named Theo Geisel. Now, you may or may not know the name Theo Geisel, but you probably know him as Dr. Seuss. This guy Cerf proposed the bet and challenged that Dr. Seuss would not be able to write an entertaining children's book using only 50 words. He took the bet and he won it. If you've ever heard the name Sam I Am, I've read this book about a hundred times now, you know this was green eggs and ham. But see, he accepted this challenge of only using 50 words. And at first glance, you think, well, this was just this was just a lucky fluke. Like, you had a talented author, he, he played a game. But there's more to the story. Because if you can operate within the constraints that God has put into place, it's going to make you a more, cre it's going to make you a more creative person. You're willing to operate within that. And he discovered, through this little bet, was the power of setting constraints. And they're not the enemy. Every one of us has a limited set of tools that we can work with, that God intends us to work with inside of, and you've got to figure out how to work with them. See, as we rely on God to overcome, we showcase his power and we showcase his glory within those constraints that he's given us, not cheating, trying to get out of them. This, and that point's a little different than what's in your notes. <clears throat> and then third, confess. Fess up when you mess up. Um, Saul, when he was finally confronted on what he'd done wrong, he, he won't accept responsibility for his actions. And I can, I can recall, um, actually, I, I, I can't recall um, anyone less willing to me to admit when they've screwed up. It's hard. But I also don't recall ever thinking less of someone when they admit that they've screwed up. Generally, I think more of someone. I feel more connected to somebody when they confess, you know, I really messed up. Does anybody mind hearing that? When people admit, you know, I'm wrong, I made a mistake. And by the way, when you confess, don't do a partial confession. Just admit to the whole thing. That's actually where you get the healing. Uh, there was a study done on this, the U.S. and Israel. It's called I Cheated But Only a Little. Um, it was a series of studies, there was 4,000 people, and they found that people who only partially confessed a transgression felt worse than those who did not confess at all. And the study's lead author said, confessing only part of the guilt of one's transgression is attractive to a lot of people because they expect the confession to be more believable and guilt-relieving than not confessing. But it's actually the opposite that's true. People seeking redemption by partially admitting their big lies feel guiltier because they do not take complete responsibility for their behaviors. The Harvard Business Review summarized research and said, confession is a powerful way to relieve guilt, but it only works if you tell the whole truth. So just when you mess up, fess up. I had a, a uh, boss that told me once I completely screwed up. I was working for a seminary. I'd given somebody the wrong information. It messed up like a whole semester for them. And I just went to him, I just told him the whole thing. He said, you know, I did the same thing. 
I get it. So putting all this together, obey even when it hurts. Obey even when it hurts. I'm going to close with a story about a woman named uh, Karen Watson. She was a Southern Baptist missionary. She actually died. Uh, she was killed in 2004. She was working in the Middle East. She dated this letter before she died. It was supposed to go out upon her death to two pastors, uh, Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger. So she, I want to read the letter that she sent on her deathbed. Please listen to this. She said, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I was not called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. She states it twice. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I'm still working with my people group. I thank you for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Prepare young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. Then she goes on and says this. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you both in my church family. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you have called us to a costly obedience. God, I pray that we would not make the mistake of partial obedience or taking matters into our own hands. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful example you are to us. That you willingly and obediently sacrifice your own life for sinners who could have cared less for you. God, I pray that we would not get caught up in the circumstances and events going on all around us. I pray we would keep our eyes fixed on you and know that you know utopia is ever going to come to this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you'd like prayer this morning, feel free to join me or one of the other elders uh, who will be standing up here. Have a wonderful Sunday and you're dismissed.